Welcome to the Inclusive Education Project. I'm Vicki Brett. I'm Amanda Salohi. We're two civil rights lawyers on a mission to change the conversation about education, civil rights, and modern activism. Each week, we're going to explore new topics which are going to educate and empower others and give them a platform to enact change in education and level the playing field. Hello. Hi, everyone. Hope everyone is doing well. I don't, I know that we said that we would do a little bit of chit chat, but I'm actually really thrilled to have our guests on today. Should we just get into it? Today, we're really excited. We have Diana Pastor Carson on. Thank you for coming on the pod. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and how you got into this world working with our children and families? Yes, I would love to. So first and foremost, I am a sibling advocate and a big fan of my brother, Joaquin Carson, who spent 15 years of his life in an institution and for whom our family fought for three years in order to bring him home. Wow. And Yeah, so that's one thing. And by the way, I always make it clear that Joaquin gives his consent and his blessing for me to speak about our journey together. I feel like that's really important to protect his dignity and his privacy. And he has helped me to create different talks that we've done at conferences and helped me to co-write some of them. And he's been in the audience as I've done keynote presentations about our journey. He does give his permission. I love love that you said that, though, because it goes to the dignity of that other person, right? And so often that just kind of gets brushed under the rug. So thank you yeah. for saying that. Thank of you, course. Joaquin. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Joaquin. Absolutely. Because your story, Joaquin, impacts so many people, their lives, their life quality. So also, I have been an elementary educator for over 30 years, both as a teaching assistant in a special education class, then as a special education teacher, then as a general education teacher in grades pre-K through sixth grade. I also am a lecturer of a disability and society course through San Diego State University. And I've taught other disability and inclusion related courses through San Diego State University, the University of San Diego and another local community college. I am a public speaker, an inclusion visionary and a community activist. I've done a TED talk. I've spoken at numerous conferences. I served two terms on the Board of Disability Rights California, and I am currently serving on the Board of Directors of Disability Voices United. And last year, I had the wonderful opportunity to interview about 50 people producing a series with Ability Magazine. And one of the people I got to interview was Judy Human, who is one of the featured stars of Crip Camp. And I was certainly (laughs) starstruck when I was with her, could barely talk. Right. (laughs) Um, Yes, I am also the author of Beyond Awareness, Bringing Disability into Diversity Work in K-12 Schools and Communities. And I'm also the author of Ed Roberts, Champion of Disability Rights, which is a children's book. I'll soon be launching an online course for educators and community members who want to learn about disability awareness 
from a social model or social justice lens. And I'm also in the planning stages for starting a podcast. Yay! I mean, talk about just like not even a triple threat. It's just like everything, right? Like you have the educational background, you have the personal background, you have the advocacy background. And for us, it that when I say I was thrilled, I'm like jumbling over my words because being able to talk to somebody that has been able to create the change that like a man and I are always talking about and we see it on such an individualized level right and the reason for the podcast is to start those conversations about inclusivity and just about how it's not the focus is not just the person with the unique needs it's about everybody that is in that person's life and I think you encompass that so well And I like the one place I want to start is, I guess, with your educational background in terms of being like in the classroom. I just recently had an experience with a director when I had kind of let her know, you know, in the past, the child was placed in special day and the parents didn't really understand what that meant. And he was definitely not the child that needed to be in a special day classroom. And I say that because he was of average intelligence. He just had real severe ADHD. And the director's response to me was, well, in elementary school, that's the only place that we can really give them all this intervention. So, you know, put them in a special day class at first and then bring them into the general education because I've been able to give him all these services. And I just like my head exploded because (laughs) all the research is early intervention, general education. So I just kind of wanted to get your perspective of when you were in the classroom of what inclusivity meant to you, you know, and that's probably a big topic, but let's start there. (laughs) It is a huge topic. I mean, I've done eight hour trainings on that or on what inclusive education can look like. Mm -hmm. And for me personally, it meant using what the child's special interests are, Mm -hmm. using what their strengths are, Mm -hmm. and going from there. It also meant adding more engaging activities into the curriculum. It meant doing more collaborative work in the classroom. It meant really teaching the kids about how to honor everyone and their differences, and it's okay to move around. We don't always have to be sitting still and quiet. And just sometimes I like to say, just shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Just be quiet. Let let the kids talk. Let the kids process. If it's always that we're lecturing, then that makes it really difficult for a student who who hyper-focuses on certain things. Their Mm -hmm. attention is there. Mm -hmm. It's just on other things that are more engaging. So that's difficult for all kids, all people to just sit and listen to a lecture alone. Nobody likes to do that. Nobody wants to do it. And we've gone away from learning should be fun and it should be. And I think that's something that we see a lot is like, well, we have to do it this way. So we can't Mm -hmm. individualize, but we forget that it's not necessarily about individualizing what you do for these children are, it's great for everybody, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. I have a funny story to tell about that. I had, so when I was teaching kindergarten, I had a little boy who was Mm non-speaking, had some significant disabilities, Mm -hmm. uh, had an IEP, and it was 
discussed that this individual student should be in a special education class. Yeah. But I was one of those teachers who just kind of refused. Yeah. <laughs> like, Amazing. No, awesome. Like, go. <laughs> this child belongs in my room. Yeah. So one of the things that was difficult because yeah. he had a lot of attention, yep. you know, deficits, it mm-hmm. would seem when we were learning to read and to write and to do math. However, there was one way that I could always get his attention. He loved Mark Antony. Uh. He loved his music. <laughs> so there's that song that goes, Voy a reír. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I changed the words. I said, my name is Diego. I'm nice to others. I have nice hands. I keep my hands to myself. (laughs) Whenever whenever we would start singing, and I had a verse in Spanish, too, that I Mm -hmm. would sing, and the students would start singing Mm -hmm. along. So I was in parent conferences, and one of my parents came up to me and said, what is this song about uh, Diego? My daughter, who this little blonde girl, you know, is singing, My name is Diego. Yo me porto bien. Siempre doy cari. She's singing about him making good choices. Right. And, right. and she was one of his best friends, and she loved him so much and would sing it to him all the time. And that was one of the ways that we got through an entire school year. Wow. Um, just in the middle of a lesson, just right. everybody sing it. Sing Diego's song a little bit. Let's whisper his song. And then he would get really calm and really focused. Now let's sing it with clapping. Let's sing it with some pounding on the carpet. You know, just getting him engaged and got all of the students engaged, Amanda. Just like you said, it was beneficial to all the students. And not only did it teach or engage him and teach him, have him access to the curriculum that we were learning, but it also gave the students the opportunity to learn something about what it means to be inclusive, mm-hmm. what it means mm-hmm. to care about everybody's success. Right. And that's something that we talk about in, you know, the benefit that goes to the entire class. We are not just allowing certain children to be included, but we are also teaching inclusion at an early age. If we start at preschool including children with special needs within the classroom, then everybody else at an early age is used to. I mean, we talk about all the time how, like, when we were kids, like, we knew that there were some students with disabilities within our elementary school. I mean, I remember very vividly in my third grade classroom having two boys that were twins with autism, and one was, like, in my class and one was in the neighboring class, but they were in for maybe an hour a day, Mm -hmm. and we rotated who, like, sat with him and it was great exposure but it wasn't enough and Mm -hmm. it wasn't until third grade that I think I had that exposure and it's not enough if we're going to really create an inclusive society it's not just taking the individuals that need to be included it's teaching inclusion to everybody Absolutely. Woohoo! Yes. <laughs> I know we're preaching to the choir here. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting because, you know, just even on an individual level, you see stark differences in those kiddos that get the early intervention, the supports that they need, and that stay in gen ed. And what I have been seeing lately, which is bonkers to me because of the year and a half that we had due to COVID, right? And the regression that we're seeing in all kiddos is the unwillingness to acknowledge that a general education setting for even a kiddo with Down syndrome, for example, is the type of setting 
that is best for that child. Their work output may not look like that of the other children, but a lot of these districts are getting hung up on that. Well, no, they have to be at grade level. And it's like, no, they don't. And and I don't know if it's because I'm involved as an attorney. And so they're like, well, you're going to sue us anyway. And it's just like, no, (laughs) we want the child to stay in a general education setting and be exposed to the material and to work at their pace and at their level. But it's like, I don't know where, like, I don't know if they had a conference or something, but like, I'm getting that a lot where it's just like, no, they have to be at grade level. And it's just like, it's more Education is more than just that. And if we know the child's capabilities, then let's, you know, an IEP is academic, social, emotional, and vocational. We can still have two out of three of those be at grade level to a certain extent and provide this child a whole approach to education instead of this just academic focus, which I don't know if it's because of the year that we had, but... I'm getting that pushback. Is is that something that you've seen when you talk about inclusion, like, or even, you know, obviously you have a curriculum that, that some school districts, what is the pushback? Or do you see that pushback or do you get, no, yes, this is a great idea. <laughs> I see that pushback. I've seen that 25 years of my yeah. teaching career. That's yeah. been, that, that's been what, what is. is so. Yeah. And I've had my hand slapped um, mm. by administration mm. at the district level for for um, disagreeing. Yep. And yep. so, you know, the thing is, when people come from that point of view, it's because they don't understand the long-term impact. You know, they see these students when they are pre-K, elementary, middle, high school age, they don't see what this does to them when they are in their 20s, 30s, mm-hmm. 40s. They don't understand how life quality is greatly affected by the early years with those social emotional opportunities. And they don't think about the overall benefits. A lot of times, like when we're in IEP meetings, some of what Vicki was sharing with her experience, the director is they are thinking about the academic standards Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that they have to meet. Absolutely. I deal with this all the time, but I'm dealing with this specifically. I was talking to someone yesterday about a student who has been included in general education since he was in second grade. Now he's a junior in high school and he's benefited every single Mm -hmm. year. And all of a sudden Mm -hmm. the high school says he can no longer be in general education for certain classes. There's no way. And the attorney tries to tell me, and this is someone who's new to this case. I've been with this student since he was in the first grade. And trying to say, well, his standardized scores, he'd be Mm. an island of one. This is the phrase we hear all the time, Mm -hmm. island of one, because his academic work would be so different from the rest of the class. And I go, you know, academics is only one piece of the puzzle. And parent understands that, yes, his work will be different. Because guess what? It has been different. He's been doing this. This isn't Mm -hmm. new for him. Mm -hmm. But the benefits that he's gained for so many years is so much more broad than just the academic component. But exposure to the academics is still important too, even if it's at a higher level. And that's what makes it really hard for us when there's so much narrow-mindedness when it comes to inclusion, thinking, well, there's so many things that are bad about it, so we're not even going to think about the benefits. And that's that's unfortunate that there are so many educators that think that way and their attorneys and administrators because they're so hyper-focused and we get it you have to be focused on the test scores but 
That's not everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's important to for families to know that it's not inclusion for the sake of inclusion. Right. And right. educators know it's not just because we believe in inclusion that we want it, although we have research to show how mm-hmm. it does have a positive impact on all people involved. But it's also it's based on an individual's needs. Mm-hmm. That's the intent of mm-hmm. you know the laws that, that say that students have a free and appropriate mm-hmm. public education mm-hmm. in the least restrictive environment. So you know, if a student can do, can learn where from their baseline, if they can learn the next level of what it is that they're working on, whether it be in reading, writing, or math, it's not like we want to skip them over and say, well, you can't count to five and now you're going to do algebra. Totally. That's not what we're saying. We're saying, have you learned your counting from one to five and identifying your mm-hmm. numbers one to five, mm-hmm. but do it in the context of being in a room with people working right. on algebra and being able to pick out all those numbers on the board or on people's papers. Mm-hmm. Find a way creatively mm-hmm. to work on those skills in a context where other people are working on math skills as well. But not everybody sees the possibility. Right. Not every educator understands that possibility and why they don't. And many don't seem to have a will to understand mm-hmm. is because they don't understand the long-term benefit. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to look at a child. Nobody who went into the teaching profession is saying, I don't care about these students. That's not what they're saying. Right. They just don't understand the logic. Right. They haven't seen what it does to a person mm-hmm. who's been institutionalized for mm-hmm. 15 years because mm-hmm. they were segregated all of their Mm -hmm. years of elementary and middle and high school education. Yeah, well, and it goes back to the way that our education system kind of is anyway. When I was in college, I dove deep. I was a child development major, and I dove deep into education, and I remember learning about other countries and how they do it. And the one facet that I've always been fascinated about is the fact that there are other countries where students can have follow the same teacher from year to year. Mm. And the benefit of that is that they know how best this child learns and how there are struggles and they can see it. It's not an isolated thing, but here in the United States, we have a different teacher every year. And then middle school and high school, you might have six to eight teachers. So the information about how best the child learns, what they benefit from their interests does not follow them in the way that it should. Sure, we have report cards and we might have notes, but how many teachers have the opportunity to talk to the teacher from the year before and dive deep into every student? They don't have that opportunity. They Many of them probably want to, but are they able to? Do they have, you know, the opportunity, like I said, you know, and that's, I think, a hard part is so when they, you know, get a roster of students and they're learning about them, it's year after year. And I think this is what frustrates parents is that they're feeling like they're having to retell the story of their child Mm -hmm. every year. Mm -hmm. And you don't have one common thread that goes from year to year to talk about, you know, how, what's the continuity there? What is the child and the benefit too, if the child did have a wonderful year, maybe one year, you know, there's maybe some writings in an IEP or report card about things that they did well, but it's not that detailed. It's it's not really showing that picture of where can they continue to benefit. It's that isolation of I'm only looking at this year. I'm looking at third grade and that's it. Yeah. I think you bring up a good point in terms of the long term. A lot of teachers, even if we bring that up, I should say a lot of district administrators say, well, if we're not seeing it, we can't address it. And that's so frustrating <laughs> because... 
when we have kiddos on the spectrum that uh, have issues with transitioning and they just haven't had the opportunity to necessarily do that from classroom to classroom because they're not in middle school yet, why wouldn't we want to focus on that within transitions between subjects, right? And it's this mentality of like, well, that's not for us to deal with. Like, let's kick the can down the road. We see that very often as well. And it's very frustrating. And to have the perspective of, well, they just don't understand that. Even if you try to bring that awareness to them, I think a lot of teachers think it's just going to be too much work. And it really isn't. Like that song that you created for Diego not only benefited every single child in that class, it got their attention and got their hand, you know, got their hands to be put, taught them another language as well, it seems like. And most of the time, you know, accommodations and things like that, sorry, I'll just finish this, uh, benefit all the kids, not just that specific kid. <laughs> yeah. And these students are going to grow up to be physicians, mm-hmm. educators, supermarket owners and managers and bus drivers, they're going to be people in the community mm-hmm. who are then going to be able to comfortably and productively work next to people with disabilities right. and to right. be allies for people with disabilities and mm-hmm. just in general improve the way society perceives disability yeah. and empowers access for people with disabilities and inclusion and just they have the opportunity to have an inclusive mindset and mm-hmm. really learn firsthand yeah. how their life is better and other people's lives are better when we're all included. And they'll t- carry that with them into their adulthood. And they may have a easier time becoming a parent to a child with mm. a disability mm. because they're already immersed in a diversity appreciation mentality. Right. So we always have an eye for how do we help schools? How do we help families? How do we help educators moving forward? So we talked a lot about inclusion. What's the best way, do you think, for a teacher or an administrator or a parent who wants to get their school more inclusive? What would be like that first step that you would recommend to get there? Gosh, that is a huge, huge task. I mean, administrator, administrator, mm-hmm. I think has a better chance because I think it's top mm-hmm. down, mm-hmm. you know, if the administration supports inclusion, then teachers will have a better time, easier time creating inclusive environments for students. If the administration does not support inclusion, if it's not a priority, then it's going to be an uphill battle for both parents and teachers. And I've had really amazing, amazing administrators on my local school sites who supported all of the inclusion efforts that I had, and they did everything they could, and they they allowed me and, you know, supported me in having students in my class and not being transferred to a special education class. But once that student left my classroom, that, you know, if the other teacher wasn't as committed, then my administrator really didn't, you know, if the psychologist and the district people were saying this child belongs in a special education classroom, then that is where the child went unless the parents were strong advocates for their child mm-hmm. to remain in an inclusive, mm-hmm. inclusive setting, then it didn't happen. And sometimes it did with parents knowing what is possible. For parents, right. 
you know, you may not be able to change your district in the time that you have with your child in that district. However, you are an advocate. If you are committed to your child having an inclusive education, then go to conferences, meet people, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. get to know people who write about inclusion, who teach about inclusion, listen to podcasts, and stay strong. Absolutely. And, you know, you have to be able to work with the people at that district level. And if they are unwilling to work with you, I think that acknowledgement needs to happen as well. Because yeah. we've been doing this for 10 years and it's just, it's the same story where you're just, I have a job. Amanda and I should not have jobs. And yes, there are things that we can do and complaints and settlements and we can keep them at bay. But if you consistently year from year, top down have people that are not supportive of their teachers, that are not supportive of an inclusive model, that are not supportive of new ideas, you are not going to get anywhere. And I think that that's really hard for a lot of parents because it is a free and appropriate public education. It should be in the public you know, realm. But in order to change that, and I think you had said this earlier as well, it is a lot of work and it is very tough emotionally physically for you to be that warrior if you are the only one, right? I think it's different when there's like a group of parents or, you know, there's a small movement within the PTA or, you know, something like that. But I mean, and I deal with the individualized family and child and program. And while we can make some changes, you know, some of these parents have to come back to us year to year because we have to sue the same district year after year. <laughs> and I think that is very difficult for a lot of families. Yeah, you can't legislate morality. You can't, right. I mean, you can have a law, but you can't really change the hearts and minds mm. of the people mm. there without some extensive educational efforts. And speaking of that, you know, that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book, Beyond Awareness, Bringing Disability into Diversity Work in K-12 mm. Schools and Communities. It was because my three worlds collided as a mm. sibling advocate, as an educator in the elementary school, and as a disability studies educator. You know, I came to the realization that my brother Joaquin's life in an institution could have been avoided mm. if the special educators, if the professionals, mm. if the administrators, the community as a whole had been committed to access and equity and inclusion yes. for all people and to demonstrating love for all people, even within this educational setting that, you know, love might be a taboo idea, but it really is, about, inclusion is all about love mm -hmm. and demonstrating that love in dignifying ways. Mm -hmm. So this realization made me look at what are we doing wrong in terms of disability awareness? Because I would think even I was doing disability awareness where you simulate what it might be like to have a disability and then you can either be mm. left with, oh, I feel sorry for that person who has mm. that disability or, um, wow, that person's a super crip. You know, that person's a, you know, they, they're see, overcoming yeah. the disability. But then that, that takes the onus off of society mm -hmm. for creating accessible environments yep. and opportunities and inclusive opportunities. So I started to see, well, the reason why this isn't working, it's not helping is because we're not demonstrating that we need to create, we need to stop looking at fixing the disability and start looking at fixing societal views of disability. Yes. 
And so that's why I wrote the book that and I started doing disability awareness in a different way at my school. First thing I did was I stopped doing the talking. I started having people with disabilities come in and share their experiences and focusing on areas that are consistent with the social model of disability, not the medical, we've got to mm, fix mm, this yes. model, but a social model. We've got to work on how we're going to create access. How are we going to empower people to have assistive technologies that they need for communicating what their wants and needs are? How are we going to, do we understand disability history? Do we understand mm-hmm. disability rights as a civil rights issue? Mm-hmm. Do we understand, have we mm-hmm. gone beyond disability rights and moved towards disability justice? Yes. Have we removed barriers? barriers for people. So that's what the focus needs to be. And I'll tell you what, I did that for about 18 years at my school. And I believe, and I've been told many times by parents, by other teachers, by principals whose students went to school, whose children went to school there, Mm -hmm. that their children are so different in comparison to other children who have not attended our school. They have this big event once a year and even more sometimes where they have all these people on campus who share about their lives (laughs) as it relates to a social model of disability and how we can be more empowering as a community. And so they grew up with that, and they're more inclusive and just more respectful of people with disabilities. So, And also teachers have been more open to inclusion after going through this year after year. So not everybody, but there are a lot of the teachers that are like, well, I want to try it. Let's try this. I'm bowing down to you right now because oh. that subtle shift, right, completely changes everything. And to be able to, you know, Amanda and I say this all the time too, at a certain point, you will know someone with a disability or you yourself may have a disability, whether that be mental, it could be temporary, it could be physical, but you, as humans, we like to categorize things, label things. And if it doesn't affect us, it, I think actually this is an American thing. If it doesn't affect us directly, then I don't need to care about it. But what yeah. you have been able to do with that subtle shift in the perspective of not necessarily how do we fix it, but how as a society are we responding, that makes like all the difference in the world. Yes. How are we disabling people versus empowering yes, them? Yes, Absolutely. Ooh, shivers. <laughs> yeah, we could talk to you all day long and <laughs> we'll have to do like a another episode where we, you know, maybe do like more real world examples for people because we love doing that. But thank you so much for being here today and talking to us. I know our listeners, I'm sure, love this conversation. It always gets us fired up. It's a good thing it's a Friday. It gets us fired up. The <laughs> Yes. Well, I do have, if anybody is interested, I have a downloadable ebook called The Five Keys to Going Beyond Awareness. And that is available at gobeyondawareness.com slash keys. Go beyond. Awesome. And we'll include that in the show notes so people can easily access Thank that. Thank you so much. I loved being here with you guys. Thank you for the work that you do. Oh, Diana, thank you you for the change in perspective that has allowed so many people to benefit. And I know that 
Joaquin allows you to speak to his story because he knows the change that you are creating. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much for the work that you do. (laughs) Thank you. All right. Very kind of you. For our listeners, we will talk to you next week. Take care. Bye.